and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Climate change is driving disruption and innovation in the business world. With fundamental change comes uncertainty and the need to make difficult choices. How leaders react can be the difference between success and failure for a business. Today we're coming to you from the London Business School to speak to a man who quite literally wrote the books on the concepts of business model innovation and the new normal. Costas Marquides is Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship here at LPS. With over 30 years of experience in the field, we go deep into the ideas of disruption, innovation and incumbency to draw out actionable strategies and to break down the myths. Costas is a world-leading academic as well as a passionate, engaging speaker, making this a conversation that you just won't want to miss. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. Well, Costas, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to speak to us today. It's a great pleasure. Day. Pleasure to be here, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. It is fantastic to be able to speak to the man who wrote the book on, <laughs> on, on disruption and disruptive innovation. Um, we got two major themes to be talking about today, um, disruption and innovation. Yeah. And uh, climate change is clearly a topic that's going to be um, disrupting and, and causing innovation across the, the business yeah. world. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what at first attracted you into this space 25, 30 years ago and why you're still... Why why, why it's, it held your attention for so long. Yeah. Well, to begin with, I joined uh, London Business School in 1990, a long time ago. And uh, needless to say, those days, nobody really talked about disruption or about sustainability or these kind of issues. So when I started my career, the research I was doing was more traditional strategy research. My dissertation was about diversification and how American firms were refocusing on their core businesses and so on. And as I started teaching here at London Business School, you know, my research interests and the topics that uh, I gravitated to to do my research and to write about were dictated really by the executive education audiences that I was uh, running into and the private consulting work that I started doing. So by that I mean that while I was teaching my MBAs here at London Business School strategy and the classic uh, Porterian view of strategy and so on. Increasingly, my executive clients and people in executive education were talking about other things, things like strategic innovation, like disruption, and how do you respond to disruption, and increasingly now sustainability, and what do you do with the, this particular type of disruption. So my research gravitated over time towards the topics that I saw were particularly relevant to the executives that I was interacting with, either at London Business School or in, in my outside consulting work. Great. And so, and over these like you know, three odd uh, decades you've been working, what have been the, the biggest um, disruptive themes that you've come across? Well, the biggest one really is digital technology. That is uh, obviously you, you know the one that's particularly relevant to us in business. There are disruptions in terms of uh, geopolitics, for example, you know, the rivalry right now between the United States and China, the increasingly now with uh, Russia uh, and the war in Ukraine, um, sociopolitical changes, now the sustainability challenge, the climate challenge, uh, and so on. 
Um, you published a book a few years ago, uh, the, new, the New Normal. Yeah. yeah, and it's all about the idea of uh, continual d uh, disruption Love, yeah. and um, how to define the reality of today. Uh, could you kind of define to us what the idea of yeah. uh, continu continuous disruption is? Well, the, the, the concept of the new normal, the book is called Organizing for the New Normal. And the new normal is, is, is this uh, term that we use now to define the context, the environment in which we now live. And this new normal is characterized by many things. For example, one of the characteristics of the new normal is that technology has now become normal. You know, 20, 30 years ago, it was unusual for us, someone, to be using technology either in our personal life or in business. Whereas now, you cannot imagine going through a day without technology, you know. I mean, when was the last time you went into your bank, for example? Right now we have the iPhone, the, the smartphone, and do it online, and so on and so forth. So the new normal is a, it's a context where technology has become a norm, where um, I think people, and by people I mean customers and employees, have changed their mindsets, their attitudes, you know, what employees now want and expect uh, at work is fundamentally different from what it was 20 years ago. The same with customers, what they want, what they expect. I mean, think of your own experience and so on. Uh, so when we say the new normal, it's a context characterized by things like technology is now normal, it's the new norm. Uh, customers and employees have changed their mindsets and attitudes. Um, speed, everything is happening at speed. One characteristic of this new normal is the fact that now we have continuous disruption. Now, the idea of disruption is not new. You know, our fathers and grandparents and so on, they had disruption 50, 100 years ago. But the difference is that 100 years ago, you'll have a disruptive force uh, affecting you or your business, and then you try to respond to it. And if you did a good job in responding to it, then you were okay for the next 20, 30 years until the next disruption hits you. Today, you're responding to a disruption, and before you even get a chance to really gear up and respond to it, another one hits you. And while you're diverting your attention to the other one, another one hits you. And you know, the analogy I like you to think is, imagine being a boxer in the ring, and you're fighting it out, and you know, you're being hit all the time. And, and I think this is, this is what my book is all about. It's all about this particular characteristic of the new normal where everything happens in a continuous way. What new capabilities, what new leadership challenge does that create for leaders and for organizations to respond to this new context? Yeah, absolutely. Like a, a really good example that uh, you talk about is like the airline industry. Yeah. Yeah, so where we talk, where you go from like deregulation to low-cost carriers to COVID, and now you're into the whole area of climate change. Yeah. And, and it's like they're, 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 they're from being in some ways heroes, taking people out of the world, yeah. they're now the bad guys. How on earth do you, as a, as, as a leader, um, organize once? Like, you've just got over one swing, as you say, to one punch. How do you kind of keep on going? Well, they're very, very different things that you need to be thinking about. One, I think, is uh, preparing the organization to look at all this disruption in a positive way. In the book, I talk about the need to look at disruption not only as a threat, but also as an opportunity. And, and after a while, people get tired. So another thing you need to be thinking about is how do I sustain the energy here? How do I create either a constant, permanent sense of urgency for people to be continuously mobilized and energized to fight battle after battle with energy and passion? That's another requirement in this kind of context. Agility is a third one. How do you make the organization agile enough so that not only does it recognize all these disruptions and changes happening, but 
responds and responds quickly because agility means you know you don't wait for months and years to respond to something you respond very very quickly and then there is the issue of okay you know i want to respond but you said uh, disruption is both a threat and an opportunity which implies what strategically you have to defend against the threat and attack against the opportunity well strategically how do you defend and attack at the same time so you, you asked me a very simple question, Chris, which is how do you prepare for this continuous disruption world? But uh, preparing implies a variety of things. I'd be happy to talk about each and every one of them. Uh, but before we kind of we dig into some of the details, uh, just on first principles, um, is are we deal is climate change something that is so different and ex existential that we need to be thinking about it in a different way, or is it just another part of the continual disruption that you're talking about? Well, I think climate change is definitely, definitely one of the most significant major existential disruptions that society, the whole world, has ever faced. First of all, it's not only existential. I think the other problem with uh, climate change is that there is a time limit to it. You know, in the sense that digital disruption, okay, you respond. And, but, you know, we're running out of time with climate change and we better respond very quickly. So, in that sense, Disruption, the climate change disruption, in my opinion, uh, is, is fundamentally different from all the others. But the thinking approach, I think, that we should apply to it, uh, the urgency that we need to, uh, to, to develop and so on, the strategies that we need to develop, I think you, you have to follow the thinking process uh, that you will follow with any other disruption. I mean, the, the strategies you develop and how you do it and so on will be different specific to the disruption. But the thinking process that goes into it, I think, will be similar. You know, for example, we have to look at disruption as uh, climate change as both a threat and an opportunity. We have to create a sense of constant urgency for people. We have to mobilize people. You know, uh, I, 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 this is one of the topics I talk a lot in the book about the idea that uh, to get action out of people, it's not enough to educate them. It's not enough to tell them, hey, guys, we have a problem here. Human beings at the rational level understand that. If you go around the world today and talk about climate change, the majority of people, not all, <laughs> but the majority of people will say, yeah, I, we have a problem. But you don't see much action out of it. You don't see them mobilized to do, because educating people and getting them to agree on something is not enough to generate action. So we need to be doing much more than that. Such as? Such as, it, you know, for people, to mobilize people, you need to do two things. First of all, you have to make them aware of what the danger is and so on and, and, and what they should do. But more importantly, you have to make them care. This is the big problem people always have with transformation, digital transformation, for example, in organizations now. The number one reason why digital transformations fail is not because people are not aware of what they are supposed to do. It's not because the strategy or the digital transformation strategy is not good. These are all in place. but. People need to care, not only at the rational level, at an emotional level. Why are you doing this? And you know, why are you asking me to devote my emotional energy and passion to be helping out and so on? We have to find people to win people's hearts uh, in, in, in fighting climate change, in fighting any disruption. And the unfortunate thing is that most organizations spend a lot of time trying to communicate to people. This is what we have to do, and this is why we want you to do it. But they fail to win that emotional commitment at the end of the day. 
in one sense, this should be something that is an area that it's easy to be emotionally bought into. Like it's far more far more yeah. easy than kind of trans, uh, trans, uh, transitioning from kind of one yeah. you know, desktop application to another. You know, it's this is something that you can look down through through the generations. Um, why are we having difficulties in getting people to to be? Uh, there's there's a kind of a short term, long term idea attached yeah. attached to it. But. I think there, there are two elements there, Chris. One is the winning hearts is difficult. Okay, I mean, I always tell people, think how hard it has been to win the heart of your loved one, of your partner, of your husband, your wife, your partner, whatever. You know, it didn't. It, you didn't take them out on a date, and at the end of the date, you said, "Honey, sit down. I'm going to give you a PowerPoint presentation now. Why you should fall in love with me?" You know, it took a lot of time and a lot of strategies to win them over, and so on. It's the same in organization. We're asking for people's hearts to help me with my digital transformation, help me fight climate change, help me make the world a better place for my children, and so on. You know. It's easier because these are noble objectives. It's easier to win them at the heart, but you still have to try a lot. And the tactics of winning hearts are tactics like helping people visualize why you're doing these things, not telling them, help them visualize. Or using stories to highlight what you really mean, or demonstrating through actions that, uh, you know, this is why this is important and so on. And these things, you know, managers, leaders are very good at communicating, but are not very good at helping people visualize or storytelling or demonstrating through actions what is necessary. So one problem, I think, is with winning people's hearts is it's difficult. It's difficult and not many of us are, are good at it. The other dimension, I think, is this, the feeling of helplessness. What does that mean? I'm a single individual in this big world. And you come and tell me, Costas, help me reverse climate change, help me make the world a better place for our children, and so on. At the rational level, I want to do it. But deep down, I'm sitting there saying, what can I do, really, to help here? And people tell me, oh, don't worry, small things can make a big difference. And I said, really? Really? So it's that feeling that we cannot really do much. And when people have this feeling that I can't really make a difference, they, it's easier for them to either not try or to give up easily and so on. And that, that's why I come back to what I said before, this idea of creating a, a, you know, a, a, a constant sense of urgency so that people appreciate that I do a little bit thing here, now, and then another one there, then, and then another one, then another one. And incrementally, all these things can add up to a big thing if I do a lot of them and if other people join me in the fight. Yeah, uh, that can be. Uh, sounds exhausting, Costas. Yeah. Sounds exhausting. I don't know how how can people could possibly do it. I know, obviously, <laughs> I do try try to spend as much time and energy on this uh, stuff as possible. Um, and big changes in the world do tend to come through unreasonable human beings acting unreasonably. But if you're uh, any organization is essentially a, a, like a, it's a group of human beings yeah. and they can be burnt out and they can they can if you're if you're continually driving on, yeah. on people saying change 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 you know you must must be reacting. How do you create a culture that can protect that? Well first of all I fundamentally believe in the decentralized way of changing organizations and things in the world. Dece not top down it's not the leader that has the vision and comes and says, follow me and I'm going to go and change the world. I mean, there are examples like that in the world, but they are the exceptions, okay? Most sustainable changes in organizations and in societies happen in a decentralized way. And what does that mean? It means that if you undertake 
a few little changes in your part of the world, and I undertake a few little changes in my part of the world, and somebody else in their part of the world, you know, individually, we're not gonna change the world. Huh? You're gonna change only your local environment, and I'm gonna change my local environment. Individually, no, we're not gonna change the world, but the sum of 2,000, 10,000 of us adding up the little changes and so on could change the world. And, and that's the kind of model I teach people in organizations, you know, you on your own, me on my own, I cannot change the culture of London Business School. I cannot change the environment of London Business School. But I can change my local environment, the environment of my team, of my department, and so on. And if I undertake to do that, and you undertake to do your part in the other department, and somebody else, the sum of all these individual things could change the world. Now, what's needed for this, though, is first of all, the, the desire on the part of me and you to undertake these changes. And like you said, people get exhausted. They say, oh my God, man, you know, I have my family, I have my work, I have a million things to worry about. And now on top of that, you want me to work and change the world? I mean, I get tired just thinking about it. And so how do you create this, this urgency or the need in human beings to aim to change these things? The, the, the study that I always try to enlighten people with is, is a study called Change or Die. And it's about human beings who had major heart operations, and then they are told by their doctors upon leaving the hospital, when you go home, if you want to recover really well from your operation, you should stop smoking, stop drinking alcohol, eat healthy, exercise, you know, the usual stuff. And then they follow these people over time to see what they do. That's why the, 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 the study is called change or die. Do they change or they prefer to change? And what happens, the amazing thing is that when they go home, all of these people change, but then within six months, 90% of them go back to the behaviors that got them in trouble to begin with, which goes to show that scaring people is not enough to generate change. So what do I learn from this study? The first thing is that change is hard. But more importantly, what I learn is, why is it that the 10% change for good. Because everybody went home, they try to change, they're running to all constraints and obstacles. Many of them give up and say, ah, the hell with it, I'm tired. And so but 10% sustain it. Who are these people who sustain it? What is it that sustains it? And if you go and read this book, there are many things, but one of the biggest is explaining to them why they have to change. And what do I mean by that? The 90% were told, if you want to live, if you don't want to die, you have to stop smoking. The 10% were told, the reason I want, to you, I want you to stop smoking is not because you're gonna prevent death, no. It's because you're gonna live to the day when your daughter is gonna get married and you'll be there to walk her down the aisle. It's because you're gonna go back and you'll be able to play with your grandchildren for hours without feeling any pain. Mm, I love that. Um, but in this world, uh, we, it's, it isn't a one-way fight. And actually, in a lot of ways, it's not a particularly fair fight. For, for, for decades up until relatively recently, uh, the people who've been talking in favor of climate have been a disorganized minority and there's been a very well-funded, um, you know, other other parts of the conversation yeah. who've been 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 you know, delaying or you know, muddying the waters, whatever, whatever, whatever. You could use all sorts of much stronger, stronger ter terms in there. Um, how do you battle against that? Where where there's 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 a, there's a counter narrative being sold to you, which is not actually the counter narrative. It's it's warm, it's cozy. It's no, yeah. oh, we don't need to change anything. It's all fine. It'll all be okay. Yeah. But can I say, Chris, you find these uh, kind of resistance 
to change, for any change you introduce. I, I always think of uh, whatever change you want to introduce, think of the audience. Uh, there's always, I always think the audience in the bell curve, which is basically says that there's about 10, 15% of people that from the very beginning will say, I, I, I support you, I, I, think, I think I'm on board, I think I, I like your idea, I'm gonna support 10, 15%. And there's always a 10, 15%. That's against it, whatever you say, you know, the resistance and so on. But the majority of people are in the middle. You know, you've got 10, 15% on the sides, so, but 70 or 80% of people are in the middle and they're sitting on the fence and they're saying, convince me, convince me. You know, I'm willing to be convinced, just convince me. Now, I think the mistake people make is that they focus their attention too much on the 10, 15% of people that are resistors and they will always find a reason why whatever you're saying is wrong or whatever change you're trying to produce will not succeed, you know. And like in the case of climate change, maybe they are very well organized, maybe they, maybe they have a, a nice narrative, maybe, have, maybe they have idiots in key strategic positions that are the ambassadors that spread the, 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 the nasty rumors, the negative things and so on. So maybe they are more aggressive in their resistance, but it's a mistake in my opinion to focus on the resistors per se. What you need to do is, first of all, identify who are the 10, 15% who are your allies, your ambassadors, your apostles, win them over. These are the allies that are gonna help you drive your agenda. And then focus your attention, you and the 15% ambassadors, focus on that 70, 80% of mass of people that are willing to be convinced. And focus on you know, developing the narrative, developing the stories, developing the visualization that will win them over. Win them over, not only up here, but down here in the heart and so on. And it's only by winning over the 15% that are supporting already and the 70% that are already on sitting on the fence that slowly you may see some movement from the resistors. But even if the 10, 15% resistors never change, once you win the 80% mass market out there, you've won the fight. You know, you'll always have a minority of idiots resisting and so on. So I think, so let's not focus too much on the, on, the, on the resistors and trying to discredit their negative arguments. You know, focus on your story. Focus on why we need to do this in a positive way. And I think that's a winning formula, in my opinion, to, to win the, the fight. Great. I, just to, kind of, to, to kind of question a little bit, the 15-15-70, I've heard in recent days it's more like 40-40-20. Yeah, we're in such a polarized society that if you're in box A, you believe this. You're in box B, you believe that, and it's only quite as small, like a thin sliver, the extra, the, the twenty percent left over. Not obviously a global issue, but in particular parts of the world, including the one we're sitting in right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if, if that makes the fight even harder. Let's put it like this: if it's forty and forty, but even if it's sad, I will say focus again on your narrative. Focus on the, you know, the positive side of the story and focus on that. Uh, and then, even if the this forty percent of opposition, they are not all uh, equally resistant. You know, even in those forty percent, there may be some that are really aggressively resisting, and the some that may not be that. So, I think. One of the things I always tell people is uh, when, when, we, when human beings try to sell their ideas or to convince other people, they, the mis number one mistake they make is they don't segment the customer base. What do I mean by that? If you are a businessman 
or a businesswoman and you're selling a product or a service, the first thing you're gonna think is, who is my customer? And then cut the customer into different segments and say, okay, the whatever, segment A needs a BMW X5, the segment B needs a Mini and so on, you know, different products for different. The same with ideas, you know. People try to convince people and say, look, people, which people? People is not just a homogeneous mass of eight billion people. Right now, for example, organizations are trying to convince their employees to come back to work. Or enough working at home, you have to come back. Whether that's right or wrong, we're not going to debate. You know, we know that companies are trying. And when I say to them, who are you trying to convince? They say, our employees. Employees? All of them? Big mass? The first thing you have to think is segment the employees into maybe men versus women, young versus old, you know, people with children, people without children, you know, back office, front office, you know, because the, the, who you're trying to convince will determine how you try to convince them, will determine who your ambassador will be to communicate the message and convince them, will determine how, the, what you tell them to convince them and so on. Your whole strategy will depend on who are you trying to convince. The same with climate change. You're trying to convince people. You said 40% of people are against it or so. Well, who are these 40%? I want to cut them into segments so that the strategy that I'm gonna use for this segment will be different from the strategy we're gonna use for that segment. It really is a big mistake, I think, with, uh, with uh, people. Um, I'll give you an example. You, uh, people trying to convince us not to smoke. And the key message in cigarette packs is smoking kills. Well, guess what? Research has shown that that message is very, very effective for people over 50, older people. Teenagers, it does nothing. And you know why? Because when you tell a teenager, don't smoke because you're going to die, at the rational level, the teenager says, yeah, okay, I understand I'm going to die. But to them dying, it's something that's going to happen so far into the future, they discount it and it is not important. So the message, smoking kills, is not effective for a teenager. They've done some experiments in Canada, and the message that really worked for teenagers is that you're less likely to develop acne on your face if you don't smoke. You see, for a teenager, dying is important, but developing acne, that is really important, you know, and so on. And again, my, my, my message is very simple. If I'm a campaigner trying to convince people not to smoke, the first thing I have to ask myself is, who am I trying to convince? Is it old people or is it teenagers? Is it men or is it women? Is it married people with children or is it... Because one message for all doesn't work anymore. It has to be customized. Mm. Yeah, no, no, that's because it's very, it's very common advice in the kind of sustainability field to, to find the most kind of passionate advocates uh, within the organization and then put, put, put them out there and let them go and talk to everybody. But the way that you're talking about it, which makes an awful lot of sense, is that you, you're more likely to be preaching to the converted in that. And you're, you're, you're less likely to be picking if, it's, if there's, say, uh, um, a, a demographic, or like, let's say an, a, an age imbalance in the, the, the ideas. So you know, the older people might be more, more resistant for example, than the younger people, the most passionate people, if, they're, if you're picking from that flock, you're, you're, you're preaching to the wrong crowd. Well, imagine, maybe I'm very passionate about climate change. A London Business School says, Costas, go and talk to your colleagues about climate change. You know, I'm 63 years old. How, to what extent do you think the 20 or 22-year-old is going to respond to me from it? You know, the 20-year-old is sitting there and is looking at me like, look, man, you have one foot in the grave for crying out loud. You come and tell me about this. You don't even know my wealth and so on. Am I, you know, I may be passionate about the environment, I may be passionate about the message, but am I the right person to be talking 
to my younger colleagues, for example. I don't know, you see, I mean, we have to think about these things, but the, the, the thought process should be, look, who am I trying to convince? And de depending on the segment of population you're trying to convince, think who will be the right person to communicate, the right strategy to use, the right message to use, because using the same message and the same person to communicate it to everybody is not going to work. Yeah, yeah, very good. And that also falls for, for the CEO as well. Very, very good, very useful kind of frame of how to think about getting messages. It's never across. the CEO, Chris. It's never the CEO. I tell my students, not even Jesus Christ was able to do it on his own. In fact, if you go and look historically, Christianity as a religion did not catch on until about 300 AD. Jesus Christ was long gone, you know. For 300 years, somebody else was doing the selling, the convincing, and so on. So it's not the CEO, it's, it has to be somebody else. I mean, you need the CEO to provide the vision and so on. You need the support of the CEO, but it's usually not the CEO. And I always say, it's not one person. Think in terms of decentralized, decentralized, decentralized. A thousand people working together is better than one hero. So one of the issues that we've been uh, dancing around is the idea that people, even if they know that you should be making a change, um, there might be kind of whispers in the back of their back of their minds, or whispers like other voices saying, "No, yeah, yeah, don't do it." Maybe it's just the, the 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 good guy and the bad guy in your shoulder is telling you, "Oh no, just have that drink or whatever," or, you know, whatever. Um, it, it's it seems to be an important part of kind of human nature that you we're kind of resistant to go, doing difficult, uncomfortable things. It's not only difficult and uh, things that you resist doing, Chris. If I may say so, I mean one of the things, one of the biggest problems I've seen in life and in organizations in what, is what academics call the knowing doing gap. The fact that many times we know what you have to do and you still don't do it. Uh, you know, For example, we keep telling people you need to think strategically in organizations and so on. And studies show that on average, CEOs and board levels, they spend only 2% of their time thinking strategically. I mean, is it because they don't know they have to think strategically? No, there's something else that stops them from doing that. We keep telling people, Experiment, try things out in organizations. Don't worry, if you make a mistake, it's not a mistake. It's an opportunity to learn. We keep telling them that. Who experiments? Nobody experiments, you know. We keep telling people, question things in life. Question the way you operate. Don't wait for the crisis to question. Do it before, so they never question. The evidence is companies, 85% uh, of companies wait until a financial crisis before they begin questioning. And so, you see it in organization, you see it in personal life. I, I keep telling my students, uh, I, I, you know, I know I should be going to the gym every day to exercise, but when was the last time I went to the gym? Before COVID, you know. Uh, I know I'm not supposed to be drinking whiskey every night, but do I not drink, I drink whiskey every night, and so on. So many times human beings know what they're supposed to do, and then they don't do it. And it's not because it's difficult that we don't do it. It's, there's other reasons that prevent us from doing it. And I think it's an important lesson for leaders to know that communicating to people what they are supposed to do, or communicating why they are supposed to do it, or even communicating how they are supposed to do it, is not enough to generate action. It really is not enough. I think you say, well, what's enough? Why don't they do it, first of all? There are many reasons why, but one of the biggest reasons I found is that uh, the, the environment in which we operate determines how we behave. You know, for example, if I tell you, would you kill someone if I ask you to, you'll say, no, I'm not gonna kill him. But if I say that someone is pointing a gun at your children right now, would you kill him before he kills your children? 
you will probably say yes. So all of a sudden you went from, no, I'm not going to kill someone, to, no, I'm going to kill someone. Why? Because I changed the underlying situation, the underlying environment. So we have 50 years of research in, in social psychology, in experiment after experiment, which basically shows that the environment in which you place people plays a big role in how they behave. And therefore, if we see people not behaving in the way we tell them, if you, if you tell them experiment and they don't experiment, if you tell them question everything and they don't question everything, the reason may be because the environment in which you place them is not supporting those behaviors. So instead of telling them again and again, do this and do that, the problem is not lack of knowledge. The problem is the environment in which you play. So you have to be thinking, how can I make the environment around people more supportive of what I want them to be doing? That's one. Another reason why people don't do things is time pressures. You know, we all want the, have the best of intentions and want to do things. But when you place people under time pressures, it shifts us, our priorities. And we always say, OK, I know I'm supposed to do X. But I don't have the time today. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow, of course, the same thing happens. And we reach a stage where we say, it's OK. I'm sure somebody else is going to do it. And of course, that somebody else is saying the same thing. Everybody's thinking somebody else is going to do it, and nobody does it, and so on. So on time pressures, again, is another reason why people don't do things. But the third is what, I, what we talked before, which is it, people may know at the rational level what they have to do, but if they if it's not in their heart, if they didn't buy into it and so on, they, 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 they will still not do it. Or if they start doing it, they're going to give up easily. You, if you don't win their hearts for it, they're not going to really do it and so on. So I think there are many, many reasons behind this knowing doing up. And I think our responsibility as change agents is to stop trying to tell people again and again, do this, do this, and let me tell you why. It's not about telling anymore. It's about changing the environment around them to make it easier for them to do it, removing the time pressures out of people so that they find the time to do it, and then winning their hearts for it so that whatever we ask them to do, they do it not because they know it's up there they should be doing it, but they know down here they should be doing it. Yeah. And, uh, okay. How do you achieve that in a world where you, as, a, as an organization, might believe and understand that change is needed, but you're in a kind of macro environment where, like the go where government's regulations aren't, aren't there supporting you? Well, again, it's, uh, you know, are you a bright spot in organizations or are you not? Bright spots are people that uh, recognize all the outside constraints, but Unlike most people who recognize them and then they think I cannot change the regulation, the government and so on and give up, bright spots say, can I creatively find ways to bypass these constraints? So let me let me let me pick in a more straightforward way what I mean. The majority of people externalize the blame. The majority of people start saying the reason I cannot do X is because the culture in my company is terrible. The government is giving me the regulatory constraints. I'm surrounded by an idiotic boss and idiot colleagues. There's too much bureaucracy in my organization. They always find external reasons for their inability to do something. And because people always assume that I cannot change these external constraints, then they give up. So I cannot change the government. I cannot change my boss. I cannot change the culture. I give up. There are certain individuals, we call them bright spots, 
who recognize all these constraints. They are not idealistic. They are not naive. They don't think, oh, I live in paradise. There's no constraints here. No. They recognize there are regulations here. There are idiots around me. There are bad cultures. And so they recognize it. But instead of complaining about it, they think, how can I find creative ways to bypass some of these constraints around them? So reg uh, government regulation, an unfavorable microeconomic climate. I mean, I work with banks. And the number one complaint about from banks is, oh, talk to the regulator. I'm not going to talk to the regulator. It's your job to find ways to bypass it. Is the regulation going to go away? No. So what, do, what are your options? Either you give up and you say, the hell with it. I cannot do anything. Or you start saying, what can I do? What can I do given this constraint in place? Some things are absolutely impossible, such as transforming your entire business to online overnight. Yeah. But we did it. <laughs> Within a couple of days, entire businesses just, just, just flipped on their heads. Each generation does tend to be um, formed by their experiences. Do you think that this generation has just gone through COVID where impossible things happened in a very short period of time might be bringing more bright spots through? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, the, the, you're talking obviously about COVID and the disruption of COVID and how things that 10 years ago, we thought that impossible. We just did it overnight. No, no, the day before COVID, we thought it was impossible, and yeah. then it happened. Yeah. Yeah. It goes to show you know, sometimes how you know, an external mobilization like that uh, galvanizes people into action just to survive and things like that. Has, has, it, um, uh, has it created a new generation of people? I hope so. You know, I, I, I'm hesitant to be much more optimistic than that. I, I refer you to. Uh, the, the, the study I mentioned before, Change or Die, where you know, the shock of a heart operation was enough to make people change in the short term. But then within six months, they reverted, 90% of them reverted back to their habits. Uh, could we possibly see the same thing here, where the shock of COVID uh, prompted people into different behaviors, different mindsets, different ways of thinking? But how much of that is going to be sustainable? Maybe even if 10% of it, uh, of us uh, change, maybe that's a, a big enough group to start the process of change and move us to the next level. Yeah, I was more thinking that the, the younger generation who are in the workforce, yeah. who just entered the workforce in and around that time, yeah. slightly understanding this is impossible, then understanding, actually, no, this thing is possible. And that kind of frames their career going forward, as opposed to thinking that you know, people who are you know, at, at the latter stages of their, their career will then suddenly kind of go, oh, oh, wait a minute, no, we can do things. Definitely, I think, uh, I mean, one of the reasons you see the rise of entrepreneurship in the young, you know, when I joined London Business School in 1990, I think 70% of the students graduating wanted to go into consulting or investment banking. Now, 2023, 70% want to become entrepreneurs and change the world. I think that is a reflection of uh, this attitude that you, you say, which young people say, look, anything is possible. You know, when I did my MBA, I did my MBA in 1983, 85, you know, my, my Opportunity horizon was if I get a job, I'll be lucky. You know, any job will do for the rest of my life. Whereas now, the younger generation is like, you know, they change jobs, like you and I change our underwear every day. It seems like, you know, uh, so they, they have this uh, 
opportunity horizon that says anything is possible. And uh, if I find a job now and I don't like it, I go and move on to the next one and then to the next one. And if I don't like working in a company, I go and start my own business and so on and so on. So there is that attitude now, the can-do attitude and everything is possible and so on. Having said that, there are some also some negative things that come out from uh, you know, COVID and you know, the millennial generation and so on. So it's not all positive, but hopefully at least in that dimension you mentioned that uh, the can-do attitude is there and uh, will help us uh, uh, create a new wealth out there, the young ones at least, not us. Fingers crossed, yeah. <laughs> um, so looking then at, at innovation. Yeah. As, uh, as, as that's kind of like it's kind of core. Anyone wants to change yeah. the world. Needs you need to you need to innovate. You don't change the world by doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but innovation, it's a, it's a kind of it's a broad it's a broad idea. It's a broad yeah. concept, and you've, you you kind of you break it down into various different yeah. types of innovation. Could you care to kind of? Well, first of all, people need to differentiate between creativity and innovation. Creativity is the coming up with ideas. Innovation is the conversion of those ideas into something that adds value. That's one, and you know, there are many creative people out there. It doesn't mean they are innovators, and there are many innovators who are not necessarily creative. But the, the, the best way, I think, of innovation, to think of innovation, in my opinion, is that innovation, not creativity, innovation is not one thing. Innovation is two things. Uh, I think innovation is the, the pioneering part where you discover something new, and maybe you grow it and make it into a, a market. And then there is the scaling up of that innovation into a big mass market. And I, I break that in, in, into these two because the evidence we have out there is that the kind of people and companies that discover are not usually the ones that scale up the innovations. And the people that scale up the innovation are not usually the ones that discover them. And you guess it, the, 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 the differentiation is that the discoverers tend to be the startup firms, the entrepreneurs, they discover something new, the new technology, the new product. But the majority of the time, they are not the ones that make them into a big mass market. It's the big firm that steps in, who doesn't discover, but takes the innovation, the discovery of others, and, and, and scales it up. Just to give you an example, my favorite example is the disposable diaper as a product. When you ask people who, who, which is the number one brand out there, they usually mention Pampers. And when you say, who discovered the disposable diaper, usually people say it's P&G, Procter & Gamble. It's not. The, the, the disposable diaper was discovered in 1932 by a company that doesn't exist today called Chucks. P&G did not enter that market until 1968, like 35 years later. But then once P&G entered the disposable market, it, it scaled it up into a multi-billion dollar mass global market and so on. Who discovered the product? Chucks, who scaled it up? P&G. The same, for example, with the, 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 the razor. Who discovered the razor? It's not Mr. Gillette, you know. In fact, the New York Times had an article about this French guy who in 1914, I think, sold his invention of the disposable razor to Mr. Gillette, I think for $100,000 or something, and Mr. Gillette converted it into a trillion dollar business, whatever, and so on. And I think it's important to differentiate the, the discovery from the scaling up because it implies that, at least for the big firms, big firms always say, I want to be an innovator. But what kind of innovator do you want to be? Do you want to be the discoverer or do you want to be the scaler up? And the evidence is, as a big firm, you're unlikely to discover things. You're unlikely to discover things because 
you don't have the culture, you don't have the entrepreneurial mindset, you don't have the risk-taking attitude of the entrepreneur, you are not going to discover. But that doesn't mean you've lost the game. What it means for you as a big firm is let the entrepreneurs discover, but you position yourself in such a way so that you move in at the right time and you help them through acquisition or joint venture to scale it up because they don't have the resources and the marketing and the branding and the distribution that's necessary to scale up the product. They need you and you need them. So I think innovation should be a team sport. It should involve both the entrepreneurs and the big firms. And you know, uh, people need to think where is my key competitive advantage to focus on and not try to do both. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, that's interesting because uh I've got Julian Birkinshaw, like your, your, your colleague, yeah. uh, put together some like, fantastic research on like looking back at the, uh, was it the Fortune 500? Disruption. Uh, yeah, 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 disruption. And how many of the uh, Fortune 500, 500, it was a Fortune 500, um, uh, still exi yeah, existed so like, pre-the internet. And it was something like 80, no, 90 odd percent of them were still still yeah. around in some, some shape or form afterwards. And his, 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 um, Kind of thesis was well, sometimes elephants can dance. Well, I mean, for, for, today everybody's talking about fintech, and fintech is going to destroy the banks. But people forget, 50 years ago, we had a very similar phenomenon in the pharma business. We had biotech versus pharma. And I, I was young enough in those days to remember back in the early 70s, everybody was saying biotech is going to kill big pharma, and biotech this and bad. What happened? We have 50 years of history. What happened was pharma, big pharma, found a way to respond and not only survive, but to thrive in the face of the biotech uh, danger. And what do I mean by that? Sometimes they acquire biotech, sometimes they did joint ventures, sometimes they incorporated the ideas and the technologies of the biotech into their business models and so on. But big pharma found a way to survive and thrive. The same thing is happening with fintech and traditional banking. Everybody was saying 10 years ago, fintech is going to destroy pharma. I don't think so. The banks are finding ways to either acquire, joint venture or incorporate the technology of the fintechs into their organizations and so on. So it's not, you know, the young ones come and they take over the world and uh, we are doomed to die at the end of the day. You know, there is the hope for the big, established, bureaucratic, non-innovative firm. Yeah. Just to give you an example, one of the companies I know very well is Nestle. And if you go and go and look at Nestle, Nestle sells more than 200 products out there. But do you know out of the 200 products they sell, how many they discover? I don't know. Three. Everything else in their portfolio, it's the discovery of somebody else, but they are using their muscle and their resources to make it multi-billion dollar products. And is that through acquisition or is there, is like, for, so for example, would, would, what do you see the role of kind of going through a process like acquisition or kind of in-house innovation may setting up a, a different subsidiary to do something yeah. or, or, or kind of in-house venturing. Like. Yeah, I think you, if it's going to be a radical innovation, really radical, you need the separate subsidiary, separate unit because, you know, the, remember I said before you need to defend an attack at the same time. Well, usually people defend an attack through two units. You know, the core business defends the core business and a separate unit 
grows and you know the car company for example now they're creating separate units to develop the electric car or the renewable car whatever you know the oil companies they are developing separate units to develop the renewable business while the traditional organization is defending the decline and death of the traditional business and so on if it's radical innovation then the established firms needs to develop that radical innovation, I think, in a separate unit, you know, uh, and so on. You cannot do it with the ex within the existing business and so on. But then the question you ask is, is it better to, to develop it yourself through a separate unit, internal venturing, or is it better to acquire it? And I think it depends on your circumstances. Uh, acquisition is usually a quicker way of, of getting your hands onto the the, the innovation and then scaling it up. If you try to develop it yourself, it takes longer and so on and so forth. On the other hand, if you develop it yourself, you know it better and you don't have to integrate the acquisition where you run into problems and things like that. So, you know, there are pluses and minuses to both strategies and which is the better strategy for you, I think, depends on your unique, specific circumstances. But certainly, both are viable alternatives for a, a firm uh, to consider and then decide, given my circumstances, which one is better for me. So one more um, area we'd like to uh, to cover with you is um, entrepreneurship in emerging markets. It's yeah. been, been been a theme we've been talking about with, with quite, a, quite a few of, uh, of your yeah. colleagues um, over time. And could I like to kind of tie it into, into the concept you talk about of uh, innovation from the bottom of the pyramid? Yeah. Yep. Um, so could you kind of describe what the kind of the unique features of innovation from the bottom of the pyramid are? Well, the, the idea there is that uh, I think um, if you go and look at the traditional definition of disruptive innovation as defined by Clay Christensen at Harvard Business School in his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, is that you introduce a product that is uh, good enough in whatever the traditional product is, is uh, focusing on and much superior in something else. And the something else is usually price. So for example, uh, private label in our supermarkets today is a disruptive innovation. Why? Because in terms of functionality and performance, the brand, the, the private label is good enough. The shampoo, the Tesco shampoo that I use for my hair, not very productively as you can see. The Tesco shampoo in terms of quality is good enough for most consumers and it's half the price of the product uh, of Unilever or Procter & Gamble and so on. So disruptive innovations tend to be have this characteristic that, that they are good enough in whatever the established competitors are offering and superior in something else and the something else could be anything it could be price it could be emotional benefits it could be size it could be for the bottom of the pyramid innovations the good enough it will be the functionality and the quality the superiority will be price because the nature of the bottom of the pyramid is that the key dimension that the consumer needs is I want this product and I want it really, really cheap for me to be able to afford it. So what you see is that the innovations that will succeed in the bottom of the pyramid will be the ones that go in and say, look to the consumer there, look, in terms of quality, in terms of functionality, this product that I'm selling you is not as good as the product that you can find in England or the United States, but you don't need all that functionality anyway. This functionality I'm offering you is good enough, and guess what? This product is half the price of the one you can get in England or in the United States. And, you know, and that gives the disruptive innovation the, the inroad, the, the possibility to find uh, you know, an area to grow. 
that's how traditionally disruptive innovation happens. Now, the idea is that once that happens at the bottom of the pyramid, then these people, the, that the innovators there, could then start adding functionality or features to the product to improve it to such an extent, to, to make it even better than the ones you have here in the Western world. Not better in terms of the dimensions we are focusing on, but better in terms of additional features and additional functions that we never thought of here in the West of having, but they came up with it because of their market and so on. And then these products have the potential to not only thrive in the bottom of the pyramid markets, but then come into our part of the world and succeed and so on. So, you know, I think entrepreneurship, obviously, uh, innovation uh, follows the same economic logic, whether it's in the developed world or in emerging markets. However, I think it, disruptive innovation allows entrepreneurs in the developing part of the world to not only win in their part of the world relative to the Western world, but also come and invade our markets and eventually win in some of our markets as well. Yeah, and uh, w what are the major kind of barriers you see for, for the, the, the flow from south to, to north? Yeah. One's capital, you know, I mean, there's, there's no denying the fact that we have abundance of capital, let's say, in the Western world, they don't. Hopefully, it's gonna be less of a problem because we always like to think as academics that if you have a good idea, the capital will flow, you know, venture capitalists are not stupid and so on. In an ideal world, that's the case, but, you know, again, we, we see, you know, that in reality, you know, if you are based in Silicon Valley, you are more likely to get financing for your project, uh, everything is still called, than if you are based in, I don't know, Bangladesh or whatever, you know, and so on. Because networks and being friendly and so on with people, knowing people uh, and referrals are still important. So, so capital, I think, is a problem for this part of the world. I think, you know, there is no denying the fact that uh, there are institutional constraints in, in the developing world that uh, constrain the business field. And by institutional constraints, I mean things like corruption, uh, you know, things like uh, not a well-functioning legal system, and you know, that we know that Business, yes, as a business person, you can have fantastic innovation, you can really operate well, but at the end of the day, you operate within a, a system, as you said. And like I said before, if you have to find a way to bypass these constraints. But you know, if you think we have constraints like this in our part of the world, multiply that by 100, and all of a sudden you realize the magnitude of the task that these people have to overcome the corruption, to overcome the legal constraints that uh, they face and don't face in, 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 in moving their innovations to our part of the world. And I think this is where, you know, we have to find a way to help them, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for this particular crisis, you need to have the flow of information both ways. Right? Yeah. You have to yeah. Help the whole world yeah. needs, to, needs to work together and get all this, like, ge geopolitical fights we keep on having with each other and, you know. Yeah. That is my case, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> We, I mean, we live in ivory towers here. We, we like to see the world, how it should be and so on. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, politicians and reality gets in the way. So uh, normally I like to kind of finish up and wrap off with, um, uh, by asking for a little bit of advice. 
Uh-huh. And uh, in, uh, in 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 this case, in this conversation, I would just like to to know: Do you have like a top tip for people to take into their own lives when they're dealing with you know disruption or um, your radical innovation in their own career or life generally? In personal. Well, if you remember, I started out before saying that the attitude that you bring into this, into any fight really is uh, is the most important determinant of success. Uh, and I'm I'm serious about that. Yeah. Uh, if you go and look at the work of somebody Clark Gilbert, who was a student of Clay Christensen at Harvard, he did his PhD at Harvard Business School on the newspaper industry in the United States. And he asked the question, why is it that some companies uh, responded well to the digital disruption and some failed? And one of the major findings of his research was that it's not necessarily the strategy that they followed, and it's not necessarily the leadership behind the strategy that determines success, but it was the attitude that these organizations brought into the fight. So having the right attitude towards disruptions uh, could differentiate between success and failure. And I think that applies to personal disruptions. As human beings, we go through disruptions all the time. You know, the, the, the death of a loved one, for example, divorce, cancer, you know, we go all these personal disruptions. I think at the personal level, the attitude that we bring into these things uh, would determine how we view them, how we respond to them, how sustained our response is, how persistent we are in not giving up every time we run into problems and so on. So I think one of the lessons I always give to people, tell to people is, look, uh, there are many things from our personal life that we could take to, into business and teach us how to do business. But there are many things from the business world that we can take into our personal life as well. And this idea of looking at disruption not only as a threat, but also as an opportunity in a positive way, I think, because that is the right attitude. I know, you know, you have to experiment in life, and we taught you many times you have to experiment. However, there's a clever way to experiment, and there's a stupid way to experiment. And, you know, unfortunately, many of us experiment the stupid way and so on. So the two things here I'm trying to say is, A, it's not knowledge that will make you successful. It's knowledge that you have translated into action, and secondly, it's not knowledge that will make you successful. It's knowledge that you translate into action the correct way as opposed to the stupid way. And you, know, you have to be thinking in terms of, A, how can I convert my knowledge into action? And B, what is the clever way and what is the stupid way for each thing that you're trying to do and find the clever way to do it? Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. That, that, that was thank fantastic. You. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.